Our Father, we want to bow before thee and we want to thank thee for all thy loving grace toward us. We thank thee for what we have tasted of thy salvation, Lord. And as we come to thy word, we thank thee, dear Lord, that thou hast not left us to ourselves, but thou hast given to us that dear person of the Holy Spirit who can lead us into all the truth and make real the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, glorifying him. And we want to tell thee, speaker and hearer together, that we are dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we turn to thy word. We thank thee, Father, that there is an anointing which is ours in the Lord Jesus, which includes every member of the body. Together we take hold of that portion for every one, we stand into it, Lord, that every one of us may meet with thee in thy word. There may be something for every one of us, from the youngest to the eldest. There may be something, Lord, that will be meaningful and relevant and be an imparting of, some, of thyself to us. May thy word dwell in us richly, Lord, in all wisdom and knowledge. And we ask it with thanksgiving in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I, I want this morning to take up just one point further in what I began to say on Thursday evening about this whole matter of reigning. You remember on Thursday evening, for all those of you who were present, I introduced this subject, which is a very complex <clears throat> subject indeed, about, really, I don't know how to entitle it, call to reign, call to the throne, ordain to rule, or however you like to put it, it's the heart of the matter. And we can't go over that. I can only suggest for those of you who were not there that you get the tape of that um, study. But my problem has been in these <clears throat> few weeks to try and cover the subject adequately, in a way that would be meaningful and relevant to all, and that is very, very difficult. You see, what we have really said is this, <clears throat> that the original purpose of God in creating mankind was that man should rule and reign, should administer the government of God in union with God. Man should take that position of sovereign power, if you like, over all the things God created. It's very interesting that God planted a garden and placed man in it, and it was there that man was told to dress or cultivate and keep or guard, watch, observe, care for the garden. And then earlier he had said to man that he should replenish the earth and subdue it. But in other words, he was to start with the garden, learn the first lessons in dominion in the garden, and from the garden he was to go out to the whole earth, and then what more? Surely the Lord's plan was that once man had learnt dominion over natural things, physical things, material things, in union with God, he then should go on to spiritual things and should learn how to reign with God, as the, as the New Testament says, in the heavenly. Now, we know man fell. We know there is no difference 
no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And instead of man having dominion, things have dominion over man. Man is himself now, not above, but underneath. He is possessed by the physical, possessed by the material, governed by the natural. He is himself a slave. He is not having dominion over all things. He is not reigning and ruling. And the wonderful thing is, as we saw on Thursday evening, that God gave to us the Lord Jesus Christ as the second man and the last Adam. And in him we see God's complete answer to this whole mess. In the Lord Jesus we see someone in union with the Father, doing all things from the Father in him, really working the works of the Father, speaking the words of the Father, doing the will of the Father, reigning in all things above the, the things of time and sense, and ruling even the things that were unseen and invisible. It is a wonderful picture we have of the Lord Jesus as man, in union with his Father, reigning and ruling, long before he came to the right hand of the majesty on high, long before he took the throne of God as his rightful place, before God enthroned him at his right hand and gave all authority and power into his hand both in heaven and on earth, Jesus was ruling in his character, in his spirit, in himself. He was being trained and the Bible says that he was perfected through sufferings. That is, that he learnt obedience through the things which he suffered. Not that he, he wasn't perfect, that he was imperfect, but he came to the full place of maturity because even if mankind had never sinned, there would have still been the need of training. Do you think that just because a person is pure and sinless they can sit on a throne and govern a whole portion of the universe? You might have got another thing coming. People seem to think, oh, the only thing that matters is to get sin out of people. Once you've got sin out of people, people are perfect. Not at all. That's only the beginning of the matter. Once you've dealt with sin, and a person knows forgiveness, and they know something of holiness, and something of walking with God, you've got to train them. They've got to go through situations which enable them to have an understanding as to how to rule. Do you understand what I mean? One person can reign and rule from a book from theory, but it's only when you start to, in practical circumstances, face the situations you've learnt in the book. You've learnt all the theories. I remember years ago to illustrate a, a girl, a lady who was the, the finest children's nurse or health inspector, I can't remember what it was, but it was something along that line, in the whole area. Everyone spoke of her. When anyone was in any trouble, they whistled her in. And she gave all the advice. She was an unmarried lady, but she was able to tell them exactly what they should do and was always very helpful. And then, rather later on, she got married. And then, believe it or believe it not, she had her own baby. And then the whole thing went to pieces. She, she, just, she just went to pieces. And the one who'd been the perfect uh, helper in every way, an advisor and counsellor, and she kept on saying at the time, you see, I don't know, it seems to be different. <laughs> and, and people have got the idea that somehow or other, just because you're saved, just because you've been brought into a union with God in Christ, just because you're, you're holy, or you're walking with God, you, you know what it is to be justified, that then, willy-nilly, you will be able to sit on a throne and govern in the kingdom that is to come. It is nonsense. 
And that is why God's choicest saints go through the most inexplicable suffering. You look through church history or look around you and you will find that those who, who are marked out because of their desire to go the whole way with God, those who really have seen this matter, you note the things that come into their lives. They're totally inexplicable. Circumstances come to them that are just cannot be explained on the natural and can't even be explained spiritually, apart from this fact that God wants the very highest and best for that person and is prepared to bring them into situations which they cannot understand, in which their only way through is in union with God. Sometimes they have no explanation up here, but in union with God, they go right through the situation. Now they come out on top. And here's a most wonderful thing. When God does something like that in a person's life, it is forever. You never lose it. It is one of the most wonderful things that God can do, that if you go on with him, you never lose what he has given you in a dark place. It is eternal treasure. It's gone into the city. It's, got, it's part of that gold, precious stone or pearl out of which that city, the bride of the Lamb, is being produced. It is eternal. And you see, we tend to often think of the city on the intimate side of just blessed union and intimacy with Christ. But we forget that a city is a center of government, a center of administration, a center of, as it were, life. There, as it were, everything is administered. And that's why God calls the bride of Christ a city, because it is a place that is a place of government. God at last has not only got the bride for his son, which is wonderful in itself, but he has found someone who in union with his son is able to administer the divine government in all the ages that are to come. And don't think that this little age or two of time is everything. There are the ages of the ages. Think of that. You think this last age of 2,000 years has been too much, huh? Well, you just wait for the ages of the ages. I'll be with you. I'll remind you. After we've gone about through two of them, Alfred, did you remember you used to think, what a big thing that old age was, and it'll be a pinprick. And yet, in this little age in which you and I are, and let me get this clear, in some of the other ages before this age that, for instance, Abraham was, or David, or Solomon were, or uh, Isaiah, or Daniel, or Zerubbabel, or Nehemiah, or whoever else, these ages in which they were, were the little span of time, one lifetime within an age, and God did something in those lives in which he trained them for eternal government. Because if you can't learn to reign here, if I can't learn to get on top here in Christ, I'll certainly not be able to reign there. And that is the dilemma that God has. Now, all I want to do, really, having said that, you see, is when we look all the way through Scripture, we find that Christ is the sum, the basis, the heart, and the circumference of all the work of God. He is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the first and the last, and everything. And God's aim is to sum up all things in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Or again, that Christ may be everything in everyone. Colossians chapter 
chapter 3 and verse 11. That's God's aim. And where you begin at Genesis or go to Revelation, you find the whole Bible is summed up in Christ. And then you find that God has redeemed a people. This mankind that God vested so much in, that fell into sin, that was alienated from God, that has become constitutionally such a different thing to what God intended it to be. This mankind, through Christ, God has reconciled to himself, made one with himself, saved. And now he wants to bring them to the place where they reign, not in the eternity to come, but now on earth. He wants that church of his to rule in a community, to rule in the society, to sway things nationally and internationally, to dictate the course of events, to see that the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not that he wants us to be presumptuous or arrogant and we can get uncovered. Many people get uncovered in prayer in this matter. But rather in union with Christ, under the headship of Christ, in a sensitive, reverent, fear of the Lord to really govern things for God in the name of Christ. Now that is the purpose of God, but we know very well that wherever we turn in the whole of the Bible, we find that the majority always fail. Every time that God starts with something, it is wonderful and glorious and marvelous, and before long, before a generation or two has passed, it slides away. And then what does God do? He takes up a man, or he takes up two men, or he takes up a few, or he takes up a small group, or a remnant as it's called, and through that one or two, or that group, or that remnant, he, as it were, does something into which he brings all the others. I called it, what, however you like to call the overcomers, however you speak of them, they are an advance party, an advance working party. They're harbingers, you remember? We said about, I think I found out the most amazing thing about the word harbinger. Originally it was someone who went ahead to find the lodgings. A harbinger. And that's really what the overcomer is. The overcomer isn't someone who says, I'm something. I'm really, I've been, I've had an experience with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you should really. <laughs> I'll give you a book. <laughs> or maybe I'll get Brother So-and-so to help you. But I mean, there's such a superiority. It's not only that either. Some people have got an experience of holiness. Oh my... You know, once they've got an experience of holiness, they can't bear anybody else who hasn't. You know, the whole idea, oh dear, 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 how poor. How poor they all are. Don't know the deep things. Of course, it costs to know the deep things, you know. <laughs> and there's this kind of superiority that comes with the whole overcomer teaching. It's, it was never meant to, and the people who originally saw it were not superior in any way. But unfortunately, one of the side effects of this teaching has been to produce a kind of atmosphere of the elite, of a kind of superior group, of a kind of inner circle. My dear friend, there's no such thing as the kingdom of heaven. The four and twenty elders exist to serve us. And anyone who's in the government of God, whatever it is, they exist for us. They'll lay down their lives for us. They've proved it. Most of them have laid down their lives for us. Those early 12 apostles, as far as we know, all but one, laid down their life for the church. You see, the whole point is this, that they're only there because they have proved that they can lay down their life, not once, but again and again and again and again. There's no idea, I'm here. I am the weapon, so-and-so. I am Mr. so I am this or that. I am an overcomer. Not at all. It is the people are there in order to serve you and the only 
only idea they have in that position and ministry is to be able to serve the whole body of Christ and to serve the Lamb and the Lord God. Now, of course, you see, I, I want really to talk about some of the elements of, of, of this matter because I think it's a tremendous. It's a, there, there's so much about it. And, of course, we find it in the lives of different men. It doesn't matter where we turn. And, of course, one of the first great lives, the fountainhead of, of everything in the Bible almost, is Abraham. And Abraham teaches us one thing about the overcomer. Do you remember what God said to him? In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There was nothing about something being elite. People seem to think, why did God choose Abraham? Why didn't he choose somebody else? How did he settle on Abraham? But God selected Abraham. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham whilst he was yet in Mesopotamia in Ur of the Chaldees and said, get thee out. Why? Because God was going to make that man a forerunner. He was going to make him a pioneer. He was making him an advanced working party. He was going to do something in Abraham's life that meant that forever afterwards the people of God would enter into something that God did in Abraham. He established something in Abraham. He established a principle in the life of Abraham that was never again to be lost in the work of God. And that's what happens with every overcomer. He establishes something in their life. He establishes something in their fellowship together. He, as it were, manifests himself. He, he, he lays a foundation that's never again taken away. And I find, of course, the supreme thing about Abraham is faith. And you know, when you come to the matter of overcoming, you're right there. That's exactly what it says. For instance, 1 John chapter 5 and verse um, 4 and 5. For whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that hath overcome the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, will you please notice two things? First of all, well, three things. First of all, whatsoever is born of God, not whosoever, but whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. It is perfectly true to say that whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, in one sense. But whatsoever is very important, because what it means is this, if you're going to be in the overcoming, if you're going to know ruling and reigning with Christ, it must be of God. Everything in your life must be of God. Its origin must be. No flesh. No flesh. None of your own conceptions. Not self-manufactured Christianity. Not self-produced service. It'll all be destroyed when God starts to work with you. But you've got to begin with God. And isn't that exactly what God did with Abraham? What are the two things that sum up the life of Abraham? Well, there are three again. Here they are. The first thing is this. God's the whole meaning of Abraham's life was the land. Right? God said into a land that I will show you. 
but in the whole of his life he never possessed an inch of that land except the parcel of ground called Machpelah in Hebron where he buried his Sarah and where he himself was buried. That was the only portion. You would think, what a fool. He spent his whole life, 175 years, wandering around, doing nothing. What had he got to show for it? Now, dear friends, don't you think that's what we all want to ask people? We say, what have you got to show for your life? What have you got to show for your faith? What tremendous success have you got? Come on, show us, show us. Let's see the big evangelistic campaigns. Let's see all the results. Come on, we want to know. If you've got faith, we want to see it. Not Abraham. If you've got quizzed Abraham and said, now Abraham, come on, where are all these lies that have found God through you? Abraham said, I don't know of any. Just my family. We've even kicked Hagar out. The, the, the only Egyptian, the only Egyptian amongst us with kicked her out, and Ishmael. Well, you'd say, Abraham, it's very strange. God said, in thee shall all the founders of the earth be blessed. Doesn't look as if anyone's been blessed. <laughs> you know, it must have been very tough for Abraham. He must have himself wondered whether it would be better to go back to Ur of the Chaldees and get an evangelistic mission going. <laughs> Surely he must have thought, somewhere or other I've misunderstood the mind of God. He called me out, he said, indeed shall all the, the, the families of the earth be blessed and I haven't got a thing to show for it. Where is this land that he told me that he would give me? He said, look as far as you can to the north and the east and the south and the west. All this will I give thee. And Abraham died and never saw a bit of it except what he bought with, with cash. That's all. Just a little plot. Another thing about dear Abraham, as we could say his whole life is summed up in, is, is of course the question of the city. It says he looked for the city which has the foundations, whose builder and maker is God, but he never lived in a city in the whole of his life. The only time he ever lived in a city was out of the counties, which God told him to get out of. Now, if you said, Abraham, Abraham, now just wait, let's get this clear. By their fruit, she shall know them. <laughs> God said to you, you say you're looking for this city. I mean, man, you must be crazy. You've been living for so long. There's so many years you've had. I mean, it's not just ten years, Abraham. We'll give you ten years. But if you don't show some of the goods in ten years' time, we really begin to question. Where is this city that you have gone out to look for? You're living in tents, looking for a city. I don't understand it. But of course, the third thing about Abraham's life was, of course, his seed. You know, God kept on talking about seed. He said, in thy seed shall all... But Abraham had no seed, only Ishmael, and they kicked Ishmael out. And I mean, when a man gets to 99 years of age, you would think that he must be perhaps a little deluded. I would think he was one of the nutcases we're always praising, uh, praying that we may be delivered from. <laughs> Oh dear, I was so tempted last week when I was taking that scripture from the Song of Solomon and unfortunately, and it is a cross to me sometimes one sense of humor, my eye saw the next verse and I wanted to laugh hysterically for it said I am come down into the garden of nuts to view, <laughs> to view the green plants that are there. 
And I wanted so much to say to you all last week, this day is this scripture fulfilled. <laughs> well, that's an aside. Um, but you know, really, when you think of Abraham saying, in thee, in thy seed, God said to him, in thy seed shall all the families of the earth... But Abraham had no seed. If he had 12 children, if he had the normal number of children that they had in those days, which was round about that number anyway, I mean, he would have, we could have said, well, now, one of them, of course, we see it. Even now, we wonder how all the earth's going to be blessed, Abraham, since there doesn't seem to be anyone yet blessed to you. But he didn't have a son when he was 99 years of age and when Sarah was 90. I think that's something... That takes some believing in a person. You see, what God was proving is this. Now listen. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. There was something that God had revealed to Abraham which apprehended him, which gripped him. And although he couldn't, he had nothing to show for it. Although he had no physical material success, he was gripped by something which God had shown him, a vision of God, a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to his own heart. And he could not go back on it. He couldn't go back on it. Even when he fell into sin and went into Egypt, still he went back and built the altar where he had originally departed from the Lord. Again and again, when he succumbed to common sense and uh, uh, conceived a child through Hagar the Egyptian, still, though that was a curse in many ways upon his life to this day, yet still he couldn't ever forsake the Lord. He'd seen something. Now, do you begin to see what I, I'm trying to get at? Ishmael may have looked very much like his father, but the problem was he was not born of God. He was born of common sense, the flesh, worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this world, and it could not overcome the world. And the problem, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, cast him out, cast him out. <laughs> the bondwoman and her son, for they cannot inherit they cannot inherit the promises. It's a hard word, isn't it? But listen, you can have a beautiful facade of Christianity and a beautiful facade of service and a beautiful facade of many other things, but if it's not of God, if its origin is not in God, it cannot overcome. And one of the most difficult things of us for all of us, is to come to the place where we say to God, now, Lord, I want to be one of these overcomers. By thy grace, whatever it costs me, I want to. And then God starts to blow up the facade. And we go through almost hell on earth. As one after another of our facades, our projected personality begins to disappear. And for the first time, people see us as we really are and see the kind of person we really are. But God has to start there. And if you are not prepared for that dynamiting operation, then, of course, you can never be an overcomer. For whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. In other words, it has to begin with God. Jesus is the Alpha. He must be the first letter. It's no good you having the A, B, C, D, and E and then letting the Lord Jesus come in on F and G. He's got to be the A and the Z, or as you Americans say, the Z. Um, he's got to be the whole thing. He's got to be the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's got to be the whole. There's no other way. Oh, dear child of God, what a lesson this is. Whatsoever is begotten of God 
Abraham didn't get big ideas of empire building. He didn't have great ideas of sort of rule Britannia, sort of, and all that kind of thing, pomp and glory. You see, God kept him very humble. Having shown him something, something born of God, something that was the purpose of God for his life and for his seed, God established in Abraham's life a, a principle that is infallible as far as ruling and reigning is. And that is, it must begin with God. It must begin with God. Everything must begin with God. My service must begin with God. I must be called of God. I must be qualified by God. I must, whatever other training I have, I must know a training by the Spirit of God. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And then you see the second thing here. It says, and what, uh, let me read it, and this is the victory that hath overcome the world, even our faith. For once something is born of God, our clammy hands have to be got off it. Oh my, it is one thing to see something born of God, and then the next minute, oh, we're on it. How can we get this thing going now? How can we really get it off the ground? Now we'll get it worked out. We'll do it now. Now, this is really of God. This is of God. This is absolutely the Lord. Okay? Now we're going to come right in behind it. We're going to see this thing get through. Now, you see, this is the lesson of Abraham having to offer up Isaac. I mean, can't you think that somehow or other when, when God said to Abraham, go up onto Mount Moriah and offer up Isaac, that anyone who counseled Abraham said, Abraham, it must be the enemy. God never asks you to sacrifice your son. And furthermore, do you mean to tell me you've waited till you were 99 years of age before this boy, boy came into being? In fact, you were 100 when he was born. And do you mean to tell me that now God is saying, kill him? That can't be God. But you know, Abraham overcame by faith. It says in the word, by faith, he offered up Isaac, believing that he would receive him again from the dead. In other words, he was so convinced that God's word would come true, that whatever happened, God would take responsibility. Now that is faith. You understand? Faith to see a thing begin, faith to keep our hands off it uh, so that we don't destroy it all the way through. <coughs> oh, what a lesson this is in the matter of reigning. No man or woman will ever come to divine government to their place in the divine administration unless they're men and women of vision. Secondly, they must be men and women who know that everything in their life is of God. All my springs are in thee. Not in other brothers and sisters, not in a teaching, not even in the church, not in a movement, not in anything but in him. And thirdly, faith. Now when you look at Hebrews 11, doesn't that make sense? You just look at Hebrews 11 and you begin to see something then in which this whole matter, here we have all the great advanced parties of history. All the harbingers of history, all the pioneers, the forerunners, the overcomers of history. Listen, I'll just start with Abraham. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out into a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. 
He went out not knowing whither he went. Nine, by faith he became a sojourner in the land of promises, in the land not his own, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for the city which has the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith even Sarah herself received power to conceive. Verse 13, these all died in faith. Verse 17, by faith. Abraham, being tried, offered up Isaac. Yea, he that had gladly received the promise, whatsoever was begotten of God, it began with God, he'd received the promise, was offering up his only begotten son, the fulfillment of the promise. Even he to whom it was said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God is able even to raise him up from the dead, from whence he did also in a figure receive him back. By faith. Isaac blessed Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, worshipping. By faith, Joseph, when his end was nigh. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. And so we go on. And what does it say in um, uh, verse 33? Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of life, and so on. And then in verse 39, and these all, having had witness born to them through their faith, received not the promise. Then chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, here you have faith. All the way through from beginning to end, faith. And don't you find, dear child of God, that all our troubles go back to an evil heart of unbelief? Think. If God is gracious to you this day, he will trace every one of your present problems to a lurking heart of unbelief. For instance, sometimes we say, I don't know. I think I'm being hoodwinked. Is it really worth all this discipline, all this being knocked about, all this other people I know don't seem to have it? Why should I? You see, we can even not only compare ourselves with the world, we can compare ourselves with other believers. And then comes the doubt. Is it worth it? And the interesting thing is this, that God never helps us. When we were little babies, God ran to help us. But once we've started the way of learning how to rule and reign, he doesn't. He will leave us. He will leave us to our thoughts. Is it worth it? Is the end really the throne? My dear friend, supposing we were to put it all in a nutshell, just supposing that a violent, atheistic, Government took our country. And supposing for the first time in many, many years, believers faced persecution. And supposing the 
the challenge was not no church at all, but a puppet church that mouthed ethics and certain moral ideas, that was a conglomeration of all good men's faith, but meant that every single person who was out and out for the Lord faced either persecution, prison, or death, or a life of seeming freedom. Then comes to you the question, is it worth it? Would you really, really be prepared to die rather than deny Now, why do I ask you that question? Because only faith could give you the victory. Nothing else. You wouldn't be able to look to circumstances. You wouldn't be able to look to your present situation. You wouldn't be able to look to the comfort and fellowship of your brothers and sisters since they would all be facing the same problem and perhaps separated from you. Only faith could give you the victory. And what would that faith be? Not some kind of faith in a set of doctrines, but it would be because you had seen something of the Lord himself, and you could not go back, you could not deny. Then, when you've seen something like that, the only way through is to be faithful. You overcome now, I put it in a very extreme form, but I hope that helps you. Pray God that we will not have to face such a possibility. But here you have a principle in overcoming that we call absolute faith. Everything of God, a man of vision. And what did the Lord change his name to? From Avram, Abraham, Avram, to Abraham, Abraham. Why? He changed it from exalted father to the father of a multitude. And you know, dear Abraham, when he died with one son of promise and twin grandsons, he must have wondered, father of a multitude. Is that what God calls a multitude? Three. <laughs> the point was that God was faithful. He would not let Abraham see down to the ages of time that his seed would be like the sand of the seashore and like the stars of the heaven for multitude. Because he was establishing in Abraham a lesson for us all. Do you want to reign and rule? God has put you in a humdrum job. God has given you a home. 
You may feel, is that the sphere of overcoming? Surely the sphere of overcoming is to go sort of like a jet-propelled plane right round the world, declaring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's overcoming. No, not at all. Not at all. I fear that some of us who do go round the world like that are not overcoming. Very quickly, we can be caught up in the whole system of things and lose the inward character. No, the sphere of overcoming is your home or your place of work and our humdrum routine life as the people of God in Richmond. Amongst all these very ordinary people that we are, bound together in the Lord, having to stay together, having to go on together, having to learn our lessons together, in your home with all its problems and difficulties, in your office with all its demands, all its challenges, there you and I learn lessons which are eternal. And the word that our Lord said was this, Blessed are you, he said of the servant, didn't he? Because you have been faithful in little, I will make you, I will give you much. You will be faithful in much. And the Lord help us to understand those words rendered by the New English Bible in Luke 22 and 29. I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we all really want to be part of those who overcome, those who really inherit, those who come to thy throne. Thou hast said to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit down with me in my throne even as I overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. O oh, Father, we pray that thou wilt burn these words into our hearts, for, Lord, thou knowest the amount of unbelief that there is. Thou knowest in my heart, thou knowest in all of our hearts where that evil heart of unbelief lurks, causing us to compromise, causing us, Lord, to go back, causing us to let go of things that are of real value to thee, Oh, God, have mercy upon us, we pray. Open our eyes, cleanse us from a heart of unbelief. Cause that spirit of faith to come upon us, we pray. And may we be renewed in faith. And may we be those who, having seen the Lord, are ready to go on with the Lord, knowing that the trial, the proving of our faith, is much more precious than of gold that perishes. Though it's tried, so is by fire, because it will be found to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ.